This morning, um, we're going to be in Acts 13, just four verses, one to four, and this is related to where we were in chapter 11. In chapter 11, Luke brought us to the church in Antioch, and he explained the relationship, uh, what happened in the church of, of Antioch, and that was this sermon a couple weeks ago that was all about flourishing. Remember that? Everybody say flourishing. So that, that, that sermon was all about flourishing. And then last week in chapter 12, Luke turns his attention back to the Jerusalem church, really for the last time in the book of Acts. From this point forward in Acts chapter 13, the remainder of the book of Acts, this is really the turning point of the book. The rest of the book is going to be about the ministry of Paul and his missionary journeys. Now, I know this is confusing. In this chapter, we're not going to read about Paul. We're going to read about Saul. Because Luke hasn't started calling him Paul yet. Um, he'll start calling him Paul soon enough, but here he's still called Saul. So at this point, Luke is shifting the focus off of the Jerusalem church and on to the missionary work of Paul going forward. And as I was reading and studying this passage this week, I was reading uh, N.T. Wright's biography on Paul and some of the reflections he had on, on this passage. And he included this phrase, a new way to be human in there. And this isn't the first time I've encountered this phrase, and I don't think he came up with it. I've heard this phrase in other, other places. But what he was saying was, as you read about the church in Antioch, and you read about Barnabas and Saul and the other believers there, what they were doing was they were experimenting with a new way to be human. It was this radical redefinition of humanity. Anybody know the uh, Switchfoot song, New Way to Be Human? Yeah, okay, just a couple of you. All week I've had the song stuck in my head. There's a new way to be human. I've run it through my head since I read that. There's this new way to be human that Jesus has ushered in in the kingdom. The profound beauty of it, we see it in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus over and over again says, you've heard it said or you've seen it lived out like this. But I tell you this, he's redefining humanity. Jesus is the new picture of what it means to be human. Now, humanity has a, has a bad um, taste or a, a bad reputation. If someone says to you, and I think I've commented on this before, uh, if someone says, oh, that's just my human nature, what we mean that as is an excuse for bad behavior, right? That was, that's just my human nature. But in the kingdom, when we say that's my human nature, that should be the exact opposite of that. In the kingdom of God, when we've been redefined by Jesus, filled with the Spirit, he doesn't want us to be less human. He wants us to be more human. Jesus was the most human person to ever live. There's this uh, preview for a new movie that's coming out right now. It's like some battle angel movie. Do you know what I'm talking about? What, what, what is it? What's the name of it? Alita Battle Angel? Okay, and uh, Julie and I were at a movie watching a documentary recently, and they had one of those extended previews for this Alita Battle Angel movie. And there was this terrible conversation that took place in this preview where it's this boy and this robot girl, and, and she's like, I don't feel human and he says to her, you're the most human person I've ever seen. <laughs> Which was just this <laughs> terrible. <laughs> Je- but Jesus, when we, when we look at Jesus, 
He is the most human person. He he is humanity. And so when we are called into the kingdom of God, we're not called to be less of a person, less of a human. We're called to embrace our humanity in Jesus. There is a new way to be human in Christ. And, And the believers in Antioch, what they're doing is they're taking the Sermon on the Mount and they're saying, what would happen if we actually tried to live this out? What would happen if we took Jesus' words literally? What would happen if we took what Jesus taught, what he exampled through his life, death, and resurrection, and we walked in his same footsteps? Well, what we see is when a group of people do that, they become a church like the church in Antioch. Now, what's happening there is something that had never happened in history before. Because what's happening on a daily basis is Jews... And Gentiles are sitting down at the same table and sharing a meal together every single night. This is the first time this has ever happened. In the, in the whole ethnic history of the family and then the nation of Israel, this has never happened. Where Jews and Gentiles on a nightly basis sit down at tables together and share in fellowship and communion and worship and in friendship and relationship. Now, there had always been a way for non-Jews to become Jews. There had always been a way that God had provided for Gentiles to be bound in to ethnic Israel. And for men, it was a painful way. What was it? Circumcision. So if you were serious... If you were a Gentile and you were serious, you were captivated by monotheism, captivated by this idea, instead of all of these little gods, there's one true God. That's a compelling vision of God. And if you're a Gentile and you encounter that and you realize, that makes way more sense. There was a way for you to become part of Israel, and it was through circumcision. But not only circumcision, you had to eat like a Jew. You had to dress like a Jew. You had to remain ceremonially clean like a Jew. You had to take on all of the ceremonial and civil laws of Israel, and you had to bind them on yourself, join yourself in, and walk out your life as as a Jewish person. That was the only way to become part of the ethnic nation of Israel. But here in Antioch, something different is happening. Because the gospel has come to Antioch And the Christians, the Jewish Christians who have brought the gospel, the news about Jesus and about the one God to this place, are not asking the Gentiles to do a single thing except for worship Jesus and obey his teaching. They're sitting at the same table with the expectation not that they would be circumcised in their flesh, but rather, as Paul puts it later, that they would be circumcised in their hearts. They're sitting at the same table not expecting them to eat like them or start to speak the same language as them or to look like them or smell like them or act like them, but rather to pursue Christ in their own context, in their own way. What it means to be a Christ follower in Parker Ford, Pennsylvania, looks very different from what it means to be a Christ follower in India. 
It's the same God. So the principles are the same, right? You, you worship, you love your neighbor, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You love your neighbor as yourself, but you're going to sing different songs, maybe with the same meaning, but different music. You're going to dress differently. You're going to eat different food. You're going to think different things are funny and different things are entertaining and different things. This is the beauty of Christianity as it starts to cross ethnic barriers for the first time. Rather than putting the requirements of Judaism on these Gentile believers, they're sitting at the table and saying, you follow Jesus in the context of your own culture. You sing to him in the context of your own culture. You eat the food that your taste buds like. You continue to dress in the way that you feel comfortable dressing. You know, if the first, uh, if the first Jewish Christians would come to Park Ford Church today, they would consider this a very odd experience of worship indeed. They would, they would think our songs are strange, our dress is strange, our language is strange, our coffee, what is coffee? Are you drinking this stuff? They would think all of these things are strange because they weren't our culture. But that's the beauty of Christianity, this new people that God is creating that's not bound by these cultural stigmas, but actually has the power to spread over. It's a new way to be human. This is the first time that people have ever had this experience where there's a movement so powerful that it can cross cultural boundaries. And people who were once enemies become family. Paul says there is no longer Jew or Gentile, right? There's no longer male or female. There's one people in Christ. His uh, letter to the Galatians. And you can, when he's writing the letter to the Galatians, you can see him reflecting on his time in Antioch. So much of what happened in Antioch comes out in his later epistles. We're going to continue to look at this idea of flourishing. And if you remember the definition, the definition, the basic definition of flourishing is to grow or develop in a healthy or vigorous way, especially as the result of a particularly favorable environment. And that's what we see in Antioch. There's a particularly favorable environment as the believers are coming together and sharing their lives with one another across ethnic barriers as Jesus reigns in that place, and it causes both the individuals and the church to flourish. Do you want to flourish? Yeah, do you want your church to flourish? Your community to flourish? You should. That's what God desires for us. He desires for us to live in a way that we grow and bear fruit and cause others to flourish. Now, in Acts 13, verses 1 to 4, this is what Luke writes. He says, Now there were in the church at Antioch Prophets and teachers. Now he's going to list a couple of them. Paul Paul will later write about all sorts of spiritual gifts. But there's two gifts, two spiritual gifts in the church of Antioch that Luke wants us to know about. Prophets and teachers. And this is not the first time we've heard about prophets in Antioch. Do you remember Agabus? A few chapters ago, Agabus at Antioch had predicted the famine across the Roman Empire. And so the church in Antioch had collected an offering to send to the Jerusalem church. So there's more than one prophet. There are prophets and teachers here. There's Barnabas. And Barnabas we've already met several times. He's one of Luke's heroes. 
Barnabas uh, is not his real name. His name is actually Joseph. But the apostles kept calling him Barnabas, and it stuck because Barnabas means you're an encourager. You're, you're an encourager. It, it literally means son of encouragement. You're a son of encouragement. Everywhere you go, you encourage people. And he was an encourager of Paul. See, at this time, Paul was still up in Tarsus. And Barnabas, when he saw what was happening in Antioch, he thought, you know, there's a man for the job here. It's Paul. And so he traveled all the way up to Tarsus, and he got Paul, and he brought him back. And they've been at the church in Antioch for about a year now. For a full year, they've been preaching and teaching and ministering in Antioch. Then there's Simeon, who was called Niger. So he must have been from North Africa. Based on, uh, based on that, there was Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So what we see just in this list of names here is we see rich and poor, and we see um, different uh, backgrounds that all of these people came together. And it's continuing to highlight the fact that Jesus takes... <laughs> humans and creates a new way to be human only jesus can take matthew the tax collector and who's the disciple that was the zealot i can't remember his name off the top of my head. which one was the zealot there one of the disciples was the zealot which means he was a revolutionary that wanted to um, fight rome he takes matthew who kisses up to rome and collects taxes he's like the very like the, the zealot would have hated Matthew even more than the Romans. Jesus takes both of these men and brings them together, and they are in his inner 12 disciples. Think about that. This is what Jesus does. He takes people on opposite ends of the spectrum. So here we see there's a man who's a lifelong friend of Herod. He was upper class, as upper class can be. And he's with these other men. This whole spectrum coming together in Christ. Now it says in verse 2, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. The text doesn't answer this, but how does the Holy Spirit say something? So you have these group of prophets and teachers that are praying together, and the Holy Spirit said. What did that look like? Was it a voice? My guess is they're sitting around a table or in a circle, and they're praying and worshiping, and one of these men, inspired by the Spirit of God, says, Paul, do you remember... When God saved you, do you remember what he said to you? He said he was going to make you his apostle to the nations. I think, I think he's doing that now. I think the time is now. <clears throat> the Spirit of God, one of the ways, one of the most profound and beautiful ways that the Spirit of God speaks is in the context of community when people go after God together. When, when you're a family or a group of friends, and you chase after God with everything in you, you will hear from the Holy Spirit. He speaks. And he speaks in the context of prayer and worship. So they're worshiping, they're praying, they're fixing their eyes, they're tuning their ears, 
They're thinking about the way of Jesus. They're probably remembering his teachings. They don't have the scriptures at this point. So they're thinking about his teachings, thinking about what he did and what he said. And in this context of listening and praying and worshiping and thinking about God, the Spirit of God speaks and says, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So they don't stop praying and fasting. They continue to pray and fast. After fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. This this reminds me of the call of Abraham. Do you remember when God started to speak to Abraham? And he says, Abraham, uh, pack your bags, get your family, and go to the place that I will show you. He doesn't actually tell Abraham where he's called to go. He just says, pack your stuff and go. And as you are going, I'll reveal it to you where you're called to go. There seems to be an element of this. Now, the Holy Spirit could have said more that Luke didn't record, but all we have is this. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I've called them. In other words, Barnabas, Saul, pack your stuff, go. Where's the first place they go? It's in in verse 4. Cyprus. What do we know about Cyprus? Do we remember any connections between Cyprus and these two men? Barnabas, this is where he's from. Earlier in Acts, Uh, Luke told us that Barnabas is from Cyprus. So the Holy Spirit says, pack your bags and go. Start doing the work that I've called you to do. And so where they choose to go is Barnabas' hometown. And I think this is so cool because Barnabas has been in Jerusalem and he's been in Antioch and it's probably been at least 10, if not more years since he left home. And he's probably thinking to himself, I want to tell my family. I want to tell my relatives, I want to tell my friends, my buddies I grew up with, I want to tell them about all the things that Jesus has done in my life and what he's done in the church. It's so cool. And so they pack their bags, and the first place they go is to Cyprus, which we'll read and talk about next week. But what I want to focus on for the rest of our time is this idea of flourishing, and flourishing that's caused by prayer and worship and fasting and choosing to walk in obedience to Jesus. This is, um, this is a redefinition of prayer that I've been thinking and meditating on um, in recent weeks. This is John Ortberg, who's a wonderful spiritual formations writer, great pastor, loves the Lord. And he writes about prayer. He says, the goal of prayer is to live all of my life and speak all of my words in the joyful awareness of the presence of God. Can we read that out loud together? This is really helpful stuff. Let's read this out loud together, okay? The goal of prayer is to live all of my life and speak all of my words in the joyful awareness of the presence of God. So often, we think of prayer as anything but that. For so many of us, because of the cultural baggage we were handed in the places we grew up, and I, I, or just the flesh, the temptation, the things that we struggle with, we think of prayer as this. I get down on my knees, I fold my hands, I close my eyes, and I go through the list of 25 things that I'm concerned about. And if I don't get through the whole list of things that I think I should be concerned about, that I think God wants me to be concerned about, then I feel kind of guilty about it, 
and my mind starts to wonder and I start to think about, you know, what I'm going to do later this afternoon or, or my day over here or this thing that I'm really concerned about, but it's not on my list. And so my mind wanders over here and then, I, oh, I, I'm so bad at praying. I got to get back here and work harder at this and get better at this. That is a tired, religious, broken understanding of what, what prayer is. Prayer, prayer is conversation and intimacy, relational intimacy with God. There are multiple times, and this is one of my favorite things that Jesus said repeatedly, where, where he's walking throughout his day, and then he stops and he says, you know that I'm only saying to you the things that I hear God saying? And he says, you know I'm only doing the things that I see God doing, my Father doing? I only speak what I hear this Father speak, and I only do what I see the Father doing. Because how Jesus lived out his life was a life filled with this. The goal of prayer is to live all of our life and speak all of our words in the joyful awareness of the presence of God. And what we see in the church of Antioch and in Jerusalem before that what we see in Paul's life in particular is a man in a community who has understood this. And they live all of their lives in constant prayer. This is why Paul can say, with a straight face, pray without ceasing. You should pray without ceasing. Because you should live every moment of your day in the awareness of God's constant presence. And you can do that Whatever your vocation is, this is not a call that's on my life because I'm a pastor. This is a call on the people of Jesus because the Spirit of God fills us. And so if you're at a desk all day, or you're at home with your children, or you're at school, or wherever it is, cutting grass, or, or taking pictures, or writing material, whatever it is God has called you to do, you can walk with Jesus in such a way that you constantly live in the joyful awareness of his presence. And it starts in kind of like discipline way where you, where you remember to invite God into each situation. And so often, you know, when I'm driving or I'm coming into a meeting or I'm, I've got a task to do, whether it's ministry-related, vocational ministry, or it's just in my life, I'll just ask God, what do you want me to say? What are you doing? I really try to do this when I'm disciplining my kids because as my, the older my kids get, the more over my head I feel, right? And so when I know I need to talk to my kids about something, it's much better if, I, if I'm just like, Jesus, I need you to be the one who's actually disciplining my kids, not me. I need your help. I don't know what to do. It's as simple as that. It's, it's, that's what prayer is, just constantly inviting God inviting God to shift your thinking, to shift your, your thoughts. And this is what's happening in Antioch. And it's part of why this movement is so powerful. Look at them. Look at what they're doing. Verse 2, while they're worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit speaks. Then after more fasting and prayer, God continues to speak. They're living all of their lives. They're speaking all of their words with a joyful awareness of God's presence. The two gifts that are listed, I want to highlight them quickly. The two gifts that are listed in this passage are the gift of uh, prophet and the gift of teaching. We could do a full sermon series on every single spiritual gift. There's much more to be said than I can say this morning. But the Lord brought this picture to mind 
um, when it comes to a, a helpful way to think about teaching. Anybody know what this is? What is it? Raised bed garden, garden box. So um, when my family lived in Drexel Hill, uh, we lived in the parsonage of the church. And then right next to the parsonage, 20 feet from it, was the church building on one side. 10 feet on the other side was the school, uh, was the education building with a school in it. So we had church, school, house, uh, driveway, busy road, and trolley tracks. And the trolley tracks had like 100 or more trolleys that went every single day. So our house was a constant swirl of noise and activity. Children in the school, people in the church, uh, trucks and cars on the road, and trolleys going by 24-7 our house was filled with noise. We had this tiny little yard on the front of the house, and uh, Julie wanted a raised bed garden. And so in the midst of all this activity, in the midst of all the, uh, the, the chaos and stuff, we have this little yard. Can you build me a garden? All right. So I, I dug the ground out, and I turned the soil, killed the grass, pulled all the weeds and grass out in this plot, and then built a, a, a raised bed garden like that, and then added, you know, manure and, and topsoil and peat moss and, and all the different uh, stuff in there. And then we planted vegetables, and lo and behold, vegetables grew um, in there. Now, what would have happened if my wife would have said, uh, DJ, I want a garden, and I walk outside, and I say, okay, give me the seeds you want me to plant, and I walk out to the plot where she wants it, and I, without doing anything else, I just sprinkle them on the ground. What happens? Nothing. Birds eat them. Nothing happens. Nothing at all. What would happen even if if I did this? If I went over to that plot of ground, just that topsoil with the clay, and I took a shovel and I dug it up and I tilled it, and then I planted the seeds, what would happen? Squirrels would dig it up. Probably still wouldn't grow. The roots wouldn't be able to... Yeah, the sun would burn it up. It wouldn't be able to survive that that environment. This is, um, this is the beauty of what the gift of teaching does. What a teacher does is a, is a teacher builds structure in which life can grow that it would not otherwise grow. Teaching is not about just saying profound, wise things. That's like the easiest, smallest part of teaching. What teaching is, is creating an environment where all the necessary ingredients, nutrients, and protection are present so that when something is planted, it can grow and flourish. What a gift teacher does. So in Antioch, we have men and women, presumably, who have the gift of teaching, and they are creating an environment in which the flourishing of God can take place. We also have the gift of prophet. Now, all sorts of things, red flags, whatever, came to mind when I said the gift of prophecy. But this is the gift that the New Testament probably has the most to say about. I want to highlight two scriptures. The first is in Revelation chapter 9, and and John, the Apostle John, he sees this angel, he's overwhelmed, and he bows down to worship the angel. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but the angel replies, he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. So the angel says, don't do that. 
I'm just like you. I'm here to serve God and worship God. We need to worship him together. Let's, let's turn our eyes back to Jesus. Now, do you see that the smaller um, quotation ends there? So the next phrase is John's commentary on what happened. The next phrase is John reflecting on what, what happened with the angel. And John says, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So just like a teacher's primary role isn't just to say wise things, a prophet's primary role is not to speak future things. In fact, the greatest prophet who ever lived, according to Jesus, had almost nothing to say about the future. John the Baptist. What did he have to say about the future? Really nothing. He walked around saying, look, there's the Lamb of God. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's all he had to say. There's no really foretelling in that. There's no future telling. He's just proclaiming light where there was darkness. That's what a prophet does. A prophet brings light where there was darkness. He brings truth or water to what was dry. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So whenever someone speaks about the testimony of Jesus in some way, you're speaking prophetically. You're speaking prophetically whenever you share the testimony of Jesus. That's what prophecy is. Prophecy is, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, one of the most famous chapters of the Bible. It ends with the, the, the um, passage, now three things remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. You've all heard that before, right? Okay. Now, when Paul wrote this letter, he didn't put chapters or verses in there. We did that way later. And so when people read 1 Corinthians, they wouldn't have stopped at the end of chapter 13 and thought, my, that's a nice thought, Paul. I think I'll make a placard out of that and put it in my kitchen. (laughs) No, they continued reading. I don't stop my wife in the middle of a sentence and say, thank you for that. I'm going to write it down, memorize it. No, I let her speak. Paul has another thought that's directly connected to this beautiful thought. He says, now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. So the greatest thing in the kingdom of God is love. God is love. That's the only thing, that's the only place in the Bible where it puts an attribute and equates it with God. Nowhere in the scriptures does it say God is blank the way that it says God is love, though he has many attributes. The greatest thing in the kingdom is love. And then he continues, this is in the end of the thought, he continues and says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. So pursue this thing that's the greatest and also desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Pursue love and desire the gift of prophecy. Now he's going to talk about tongues which is not something that, that we experience very often on a corporate level here, um, but the scriptures talk about. We don't need to avoid it or be afraid of it. He says, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. So it's a personal gift. God gives the gift of tongue for the edification of the person that he gave it to. For the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. Now, on the other hand, Paul says, the one who prophesies 
Now remember, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The one who prophesies speaks to people for the upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The gift of prophecy is not given to tell the future. The gift of prophecy is given in the church to upbuild the people of God. In what way? Well, he just said it, in love. Desire love above all things. How do you show love in one of the most profound and beautiful ways in the context of the church? You speak prophetically about Jesus, the testimony of Jesus. Are you tracking with me? Okay. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in the tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more, I want you to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Every good thing can be abused and twisted. And the spiritual gifts have been abused and twisted all throughout church history. This is nothing new uh, in, in recent history. They've always been abused and twisted by the enemy. That doesn't, that doesn't cancel out the gift. A great illustration of this is um, <laughs> if, if there was no such thing as the U.S. dollar, would a counterfeit dollar exist? No, there's only a counterfeit dollar. People are only tempted to make a fake thing because there is the real thing. <clears throat> Satan is a plagiarist. And he's a counterfeit. And he takes God's good currency and God's good gifts and he twists them and he makes the fake thing and then he tries to sell it to us as the real thing. And we have to be careful of that. Paul says, test every spirit. But that doesn't negate the real thing, and God has given the gift of teaching, given the gift of prophecy, given the spiritual gifts that we read about in the New Testament, he has given them to the church, and we are foolish not to pursue them. So here, what Paul is saying, he's saying, above all things, desire love, pursue love, and and the way that you can show love is you can ask God that he would give you the gift of prophecy. Now, what is the gift of prophecy? The gift of prophecy is pointing at Jesus and saying, this is Jesus. So if we continue in the picture of the raised bed garden, we could do this for all the gifts. If, if, uh, if the gift of teaching is the, the one that lays out the framework and builds a structure, the gift of prophecy is like the water, the, the person who comes and waters. Because if I built uh, a raised bed garden and I put all the right things in it and I planted the plants and I just left it, for four months without doing a thing, what would happen? They'd still die. Even after all of that initial prep work, they would still die. The sun would scorch them, the birds would eat them, the squirrels would eat them, or they would die of thirst if there wasn't enough rain. And these are what the spiritual gifts do for the body. We could, we could break down every single one of the gifts. The, I was thinking about this. This is fun. The apostles are like the honeybees, right? They're taking the nectar back and forth. Because if we didn't have bees and, and insects pollinating the, the flowers, they wouldn't grow. And so the apostolic ministry is carrying these ideas and, and transmitting these thoughts between churches. Isn't that beautiful? The, uh, the uh, gift of shepherd is, is like someone who's, I don't know, weeding. Like coming in and, oh, there's a deceit there. 
There's a fake thing there and, and pulling it out. But in Antioch, the two gifts that we see are, are the gift of teaching and the gift of prayer. And it's all taking place, the ingredient, the soil that's being put in this beautiful garden that God is building through the different gifts, allowing his people to grow and flourish. The main ingredient for it is always this, prayer. This is always the main ingredient for a flourishing life is prayer. Prayer in all things. Devote yourselves to prayer. When you read the scriptures, pray. When you pray, pray. When you're with other people, pray. In all things, pray. Because the goal of prayer is to live all of your life and speak all of your words in the joyful awareness of God's presence. There's a new way to be human. What we see in the church of Antioch is that they are salt and light. They're salt and light to the world. They're showing, in fact, there's so much salt and light that this is the first place that they're called Christians because people are seeing the light, they're tasting the salt, and they say, you're different. You must be a Christ follower. They are not lustful. They're committed to covenant. They're telling the truth. They're nonviolent. They're loving their enemies. I love this phrase I came across this week by uh, pastor and author Scott Sauls. He says, Christians have always been conservative with our sexual ethic and promiscuous with our money. What he means is, and he was just being, he was just being clever, what he's saying is Christians from the very beginning of the church have been conservative with the way we treat one another's bodies, including our own but we've also been lavishly generous. Always generous to the point where it doesn't make sense to the world. Giving. Devoted to prayer. Investing in eternity. Non-anxious presence bringers. Who wants a non-anxious presence bringer in their life? This is what God's called you to be. A non-anxious presence bearer. I didn't come up with that term. There's, uh, I forget who the author was that came up with that. Non-judgmental, boldly interceding in their prayers, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, intimate with Christ, and obedient to Jesus' teaching. And if you are tracking with me, what this is, is they're living out the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And he says, he says, you have heard it said, you shall not murder, but I say, (laughs) you can't even be angry at your brother in your heart without praying. He says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery. He says, don't get divorced. But I say to you, (laughs) you've heard it said, you can get divorced. I say to you, no, don't, unless on these grounds. He says, you've heard it said, um, don't swear falsely. I say to you, just say yes or no. Like, don't even swear oaths at all. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye. I say, when someone strikes you, turn the other cheek. He says, you've heard it said, hate your enemy, but love your neighbor. I say to you, love your neighbor and love your enemy. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people, but give lavishly to the needy. And then he teaches them about prayer, the Lord's Prayer. And then he teaches them about fasting. And then he says, lay up your treasures in heaven. Don't worry about this earth. And then he goes on and says, ask whatever you want, and it will be given to you. Don't worry about anything. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This is what the church in Antioch is doing. They're living out the Sermon on the Mount. There's a new way to be human. God has called us to live this way today. So whatever it is that is keeping you or keeping me from living like that, cut it off. Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. What he's saying, he's exaggerating, but what he's saying, if there is anything that keeps you from living the life that God has called you to live, cut that thing off 
off. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Whatever is holding, whatever that sin is that so easily entangles you, that keeps you from running after Jesus with all your heart, cut it off. Praise team, come forward. Let's stay in that thought for a moment. And I just invite you to search your hearts and ask God, what keeps me from pursuing you like they did? (laughs) What keeps me from pursuing you like Jesus did? Honestly, ask God. Invite the Holy Spirit to point out anything within you. Father, we confess these things to you. I mean, I could stand here all day and list the things that I am tempted to choose over you. But there's only one thing my heart wants. There's only one thing that my heart desires above all other things. In the Spirit, because of your Son in me, there's only one thing that I would dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life gazing upon your beauty and meditating on your word. That's David's way of just saying (laughs) before the time of Jesus, we could say that now after the time of Jesus, saying there's only one thing we want, and that's to spend all of my days in the joyful awareness of the presence of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God, anything that's holding your people back, we invite your spirit to cut it off this morning. Help us just say no to that thing and say yes to you. We want to be those new humans that you've called us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.